0: Thank you.
1: Radio brings you the Haunted Sea with host Scott Mardis. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Haunted Sea. Today our special guest is William Gibbons, adventurer and author. He's led four expeditions to the Congo in Africa looking for the Mokili Mabimbi, which may be a surviving sauropod dinosaur between 1985 and in 2009. Hello, William.
0: How you doing, Scott? Good to be on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's an honor to have you on. Uh, you're welcome. Do you want to um, tell us about your background? Certainly. Um, I was born and raised on the west coast of Scotland,
0: a little town called Stranraer. It's the shortest um, ferry link between uh, the southwest corner of Scotland and Northern Ireland and uh, I was born there, but spent part of my childhood overseas, my father was a professional soldier, and I followed in his footsteps some years later, but anyway, uh, grew up there, and um, really, uh, you know, with an Irish father, Scottish mother, uh, you get a good mixture of Celtic blood, which which goes along with uh, um, a sort of a natural curiosity uh, that we have, and... um, in relation to the expeditions, that first got me interested when I was 12 years old. I was watching a black-and-white movie edition of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. You're probably familiar with that particular story. Yes. And that kind of fired my young imagination. You know what I mean? Are there dinosaurs in the world as uh, living somewhere, whether it's in the Amazon or the Congo Basin? And that kind of curiosity... Never left me uh, into childhood, and that led me eventually uh, with three other friends to uh, plan an expedition uh, to the Congo Basin. Now that was in 1985. By that time, I had moved to London, England, where there was plenty of employment. There was not much going on in Scotland by that time, and um, and that started the quest for Mokeli and Bembe. Did you ever,
1: by any chance, have any contact with Ivan Sanderson? in your younger days? Sadly,
0: no, sadly I didn't. Uh, um, I I learned of Ivan's passing far too late, but I'm familiar with his books. I have a couple of his books uh, here uh, in my little library, and it would have been uh, great to have spoken to him, but I I was personally acquainted with Roy McCall. and Roy told me a few (laughs) stories, um, because Ivan Sanderson had his own wildlife TV show at one time, and Roy... Uh, Was a guest on his show a couple of times in the past.
1: Yeah, um, Sanderson was one of the founding fathers of cryptozoology in its modern form, as you might say, and he wrote two popular articles for the Saturday Evening Post in the late 1940s about possibly living dinosaurs and sea serpents, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with.
0: Oh, yes. I have a couple of his books. I have Abominable Small Man uh, come to life, and I have things and more things. And, uh, of course, he was a brilliant man. Um, He was Scottish. I mean, it just goes hand in hand, I have to say. But, (laughs) yeah, uh, yeah, he 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 was a fascinating man. And, of course, he and the American naturalist, Gerald uh went uh, on an expedition to Cameroon in the 1930s and narrowly missed encountering a gigantic monster that was submerged in a river cave uh, that uh, according to Ivan's writings, the vocalizations of this monster were were just terrific. Scared the natives witless in the area but Ivan and and Gerald hung around for a while hoping to um, catch a glimpse of this monster. They only saw, I think, what they described as the head or the back of the animal going under water in this cave. Years and years later, if you're coming up to uh, the, the millennium in the 2000s. Uh, we learned from the Cameroonian uh, people themselves that the and Bembis or Lakila Bembis, as they say in the Baca language, um, lives in deep caves uh, dug in in the sides of high river banks uh, that they remain in for long periods of time when they're not foraging for food.
1: Yeah, I've seen a picture of a cave that Mackle found over there on one of his expeditions. I think the one with Richard Greenwell.
0: That is correct. That particular cave uh, was uh, found in the Likwala Oserb River uh, in, uh, in, in, in Congo Brazzaville. Now, Likwala Oserb means river of grass because there's huge clumps of grass and, and, and all kinds of floating prairie on that river, so you have to keep navigating around them, but that cave. They discovered that in the dry season, which is why the cave was exposed. Um, and uh, the braver of the Congolese uh, who were with them said, "Yeah, this is a cave that was used as a lair for many years by E Mokili and Dembe."
1: Now, the cave that you guys found on the Monster Quest expedition is that the same cave?
0: That's a different cave. That was on the Jai River. Now we explored the the at least during the Monster Quest expedition. It was. Basically, um, an expedition about looking for Mokele and Bambi, because we went out there at the end of March uh, in 2009, which, in fact, was a little bit late uh, in the year. To find Mokele and Apparently, according to the natives, the best time is between November and the end of February, because that's during the the rainy season and the end of the rainy season when the water level starts to go down we found uh, a series of three caves that were partially submerged in the jar River and uh, those caves absolutely fascinated because they were huge they were deep they've been dug out and uh, Peter Beach by the way he was a biologist who went back there with uh, Brian Sass from Saskatchewan here um, they uh, found these big gouge marks um, and he was able to um, make a plastic cast of what appeared to be a very large, na- uh, sort of a, a nail or claw of an animal uh, that had dug its claw right into the mud to gouge out this cave. And by the time they got there, the caves had been sealed up from the inside with just a small hole in the top to, to, to let air in. And we believe that these animals uh, undergo a series of uh, reptilian hibernation called brumation. Yeah, uh, during yeah. the dry season. That's why nobody sees them in the dry season. They're only active in the wet season, which is about four or five months.
1: So they're probably bulk homeotherms. Not homeotherms, not fully warm-blooded, but can control their temperature by the bulk. Can keep warm <coughs> like that. <coughs> yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Now there's a lot of debate about what sort of animal that Mokili Mbimbi might be, but wouldn't you say that the footprint evidence points strongly sort towards some kind of sauropod because of the the way the feet are built and the three toes?
0: That to me seems the most likely explanation because you see we've interviewed a number of different native uh, cultural groups up and down the river system in the Congo and Cameroon. Now people get the mistake; they-, they think that. Well, these tribal groups are all the same, but they're not. I mean, there's there's hundreds of different languages, different um, cultures within each tribe, um, uh, different uh, social structures, and so on. And um, when I sent, I believe I sent you a copy of the Mokili and Bembe handbook, which is in PDF. Yes. And at the back of that, you'll you see 15 different names, different tribal names in different areas in equatorial Africa, mainly encompassing the Congo Basin. Um, where people describe exactly the same kind of animal, bulbous body, long thin neck, little head, long tail, four strong legs, lives in swamps and rivers and so on, but they all call the animal by different names. But the description remains consistent. So they're all talking about the same animal. Which, at least uh, when you when you put this together as a sort of identikit, the animal does bear a striking resemblance to a small or medium-sized sauropod dinosaur as we would imagine them to be in life.
1: Now, you're talking about something in the nature of, what, 20 to 30 feet long, maybe? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question, though, because in the Congo they describe these animals as between 15 to 30 feet, reddish-brown in color, uh, sometimes has a rooster-like frill running along the top of the head. Um, and uh, those animals can be hippo-sized all the way up to forest elephant-sized as far as the body bulk is concerned. Now, mm-hmm. in Cameroon, they describe the animals as being much, much bigger, uh, body as big as an elephant, long, long neck. Um, you know, they, they describe these animals as being anything from 40 to 60 feet long. So we could be dealing with a subspecies and species of the same animal. The, the only thing that frustrates us while we find footprints and and vocalizations and so on, is actually getting one of these animals on film, because everybody agrees, all the eyewitness testimonials agree about one thing, these animals are rare, but they're dangerous, so you would have to spend a long time in the target area before you can actually observe one and maybe even get one on film.
1: Are there any reports of these animals using their tails like a whip, because they believe that some of the sauropod dinosaurs probably used their tail as a weapon like that.
0: Well, they're absolutely right. Uh, what what Bembies are often reported as doing is using their tails like a whip uh, to attack canoes that get too close by <laughs> or to battle hippopotamus. And, in fact, um, going back to the 1930s, um, there was a report from a Frenchman. Um, who was in the Congo, <laughs> I think of the Sangha River, and, uh, and he, um, was just there, uh, exploring. He was there to help, uh, with the French colony that were developing the telegraph system, and he went, uh, hunting with some, uh, native companions along the Sangha River, and as uh, he observed a Mokele Mbembe battling a crocodile, and the Mokele Mbembe was constantly thrashing this crocodile with its long, flexible tail, and the crocodile made a a hasty retreat back into the river. Uh, So um, the the natives are absolutely right. These are very dangerous and very um, very formidable animals indeed. So they attack hippos, canoes, crocodiles, and sometimes um, we hear stories of them um, attacking and upturning canoes with their tails, breaking canoes in half with their tails, and killing the occupants by tail lashing and biting, but not actually consuming the bodies. So the animal, we believe, is strictly um, a herbivore or a vegetarian. Roy
1: Mackle had this idea that they were eating a plant called the Malumbo. What do you think of that
0: idea? We get similar reports in Cameroon as well. Um, the natives say uh, this is a, a vine that grows around the trees that overhang the river, and they produce um, you know these little pretty flowers and these nut-like fruits um, that are similar to... Uh, pairs in, in their nutritional value. So they, we believe, as Roy uh, was convinced, that these animals are browsing animals. They'll find a very quiet spot in the river where their food is abundant and they will just um, continue to browse and to consume these fruits and leaves, as, uh, leaves that they eat also. Um, for as long as you can, especially in the hot afternoons when uh, the sun is high, and that would give the animal the opportunity to warm itself up in the sun as well as uh, take an opportunity to feed off of the lumbar fruits.
1: Mm. Now, the crocodiles you're talking about, these are Nile crocodiles?
0: Yes. There's a couple of different species. There's a dwarf crocodile there, too, which aren't a trouble. There's a fish-eating crocodile, a false gavial with the long, thin yep. snout.
1: But what the most about. dangerous
0: crocodile there, of course, is the Nile crocodile. And I believe that Michel Ballot, my French colleague, um, a few years ago actually photographed one. Um, which they estimated to be, at the very least, 16 feet in length. But the natives say they've seen much, much bigger ones than that from time to time.
1: Well, I believe they can get 21 feet long, if, if I remember right. You you got the one, uh, Gustav, the famous one,
0: that right. is just huge. Uh,
1: still ha- is still uh, large, they, I think.
0: They do grow very large. Uh, I know that Roy speculated that there was a gigantic crocodile Dinosuchus, I think it was called, that may have, or Sarasuchus, that may have survived into the present day. In fact, we did get reports consistently from different people that they've seen absolutely monstrous crocodiles in those rivers. And uh, those rivers can get pretty deep. In fact, recently they discovered that the Congo River itself uh, can is in places over nine hundred feet deep. I mean, that's deeper than Loch Ness. It is. Yes. So you can imagine monstrous crocodiles down there that, uh, and I know that Roy, uh, on one of his expeditions, they, they had a, a much more primitive form of sonar that we have today, and uh, they actually tracked a, a crocodile right underneath their boat, probably about 30 feet under them, uh, that he estimated was close to about 20 feet in length, so that was a pretty big croc. Yeah,
1: well I know you guys used sonar on the Monster Quest expedition too.
0: That's right, um, it was a waste of time really, because again it was the dry season, rivers were six, eight feet deep, um, but we did capture on that sonar unit, um, these long snake-like things, six, eight feet long swimming underneath us. Now, as far as I'm aware, there are no snakes there that swim underwater, you always see them on this surface. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that kind of struck us as being very curious. Um, we, we had a couple of crocodiles that were reasonably small, but, but those long snake-like things swimming underwater, that, that, that kind of piqued our curiosity a little. Yeah.
1: Now, the famous giant snake picture that Remy van Leerda took, have you come across any stories of giant snakes in the region?
0: Yes, indeed, especially in the Congo. When Gene Thomas, the missionary, was still working there, um, he passed away now, but uh, he told us a, a personal friend of his uh, is a Congolese uh, government official. His job was to go uh, into the most remote villages you could, you, you could imagine uh, by river uh, to take uh, a population census, and that was his job. And he spent most of his time in the most remote parts of the Likawala, and uh, he told Gene Thomas, you know, he said, uh, Gene asked him, Gene was quite quite interested in the same thing, and he said, have you ever seen anything strange, unusual? And the man said, well, I, I saw a python on my last trip, and, and it must have been 50 or 60 feet long. It swam across a river in front of his canoe and gave him the fight of his life, and thankfully it wasn't interested in him. It just kept swimming across a river, and he estimated it to be uh, a good 50 feet in length. Um, and uh, I think his boat, he, he had a 20-foot boat, so he was able to kind of measure the snake, um, you know, by comparing it to the length of his canoe, or the as they say there. Mm-hmm. So there are giant snakes, and I think the Rennie van Leerden photograph is an excellent um Really, uh, an excellent photographic evidence of how big snakes can get because you know and I know that reptiles will continue to grow for as long as they're alive. Yeah, and so, and we, we've had other reports too about gigantic snakes. We saw, I think, at Lake Telly um, in 1986 when we trekked there through the forest, um, we saw a, a very large python that must have been, we estimate, up to 20 feet in length. It was, it was actually. Um, resting on a tree branch overhanging the lake obviously to warm up in the sun and it heard the sound of our voices and it just crawled away and our guide, one of the village elders was terrifying when he saw it that that later when he calmed down he said, no that's a small snake there are much bigger ones than that in the swamps
1: Are you familiar with the stories of Oliver, the uh, strange chimpanzee that was found somewhere in the Congo?
0: Yes, he walks habitually upright like a man well,
1: he's dead um, now, but, but yeah, he yes, was very I mean, unusual. And he ape, supposedly yeah. came from somewhere in the Congo, so that's
0: kind of odd, too. Well, they, they did find a, a species of chimpanzee, a very large one, um, that ne- makes its nest on the ground. It's in a, a location of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's called the Billy Ape. Yep, so, I've heard uh, of it. Yep. Yeah, and they, they've got... Uh, they actually have uh, game camera photographs of them, and they... A lot of the time seemed to walk habitually upright and some of them are close to seven feet tall so very very um, Shall we say <laughs> familiar? or I should say formidable chimpanzees because I know that one researcher was there I can't remember her name offhand and uh, one billy ape Charged at her through the thicket, but when he looked at her eye to eye She said it seemed like a strange familiarity came over him, and he just turned around and walked back into the bush. Um, so, maybe they, they feel that, well, we're human beings, so, you know, we're not the game that they, they usually hunt, because I understand that these things even kill big cats from time to time.
1: Yeah, well, there are stories of chimpanzees turning cannibalistic occasionally, too, so. Oh,
0: yes. Um,
1: so, the earliest reports... Uh, Mokili mabimbi come from French missionaries in the late 1700s is that correct
0: that is correct um, one I think the senior cleric at that time um, wrote an account uh, which I found fascinating um, of uh, French uh, Jesus they were, they were uh, passing through the forest uh, they had a keen interest uh, in uh, the natural world and so they they uh, they found um, The footprints, large three-toed footprints of an animal that had walked part of its way through the forest close to a river. And these footprints were large, kind of, you could say, frying pan-sized, three toes, and and they were spaced apart by about seven feet. And the biggest of elephants, of course elephants don't have claws, but the biggest of elephants um, have a, a stride of about seven feet. Um, so that, I thought that was a fascinating early report of an animal that could well have been Morkali and Bambi.
1: And we should point out to people that hippos have four toes. And you can see the four toes on the hippo footprints. Whatever's making these footprints has three toes. And it looks identical to footprint casts and remains of sauropod dinosaur footprints.
0: That's right. That's right. By the way, you can still get that uh, early report from 1776 online. Um, and it was, um, the cleric's name was the Abbe Levian Bonaventure-Proyard, yes. and uh, he wrote a book called The History of the Waringo, Kakongo, and Other Kingdoms in Africa. And um, I think I mentioned that in the Mokele and Bebe handbook that I Yes,
1: yes, it's in there,
0: yeah.
1: And it's and also... I, I a uh,
0: There's a picture there of the book as well.
1: Also, the uh, Trader Horn stuff. If you want to talk about that,
0: the Trader Horn was a fascinating man. He was an Englishman um, who his real name was Alfred Aloysius Smith, and uh, he, um, in his old age, um, you know, he was uh, a peddler of pots and pans in South Africa, and he um, met a, a, a novelist. Um, you know, that uh, a lady there um, called Ethel Rita, Ethel Rita Lewis, who was a, a, quite a well-known South African novelist, and she was fascinated by all his stories, and so she put it all together in a book called The Trader Horn, The Ivories in the Earlies. I actually have an original copy. And in that book, um, he refers to um, about giant footprints he found in one of the rivers in Cameroon, and the animal was called the jagonini, and um, it left these large three-toed footprints in, uh, uh, in the mud beside the river. And um, the, the people there were very afraid of it because it was just uh, the biggest thing in the river. Giant uh, Jagonini, by the way, means giant diver. Hmm. And uh, so uh, but he died in 1931, but not after we got all that information down in a wonderful book uh, that was written by Ethel Rita Lewis. And uh, in 1910, just before that, A British uh, aristocrat called Sir Clement Lloyd Hill um, was crossing Lake Victoria, um, which is now in modern-day Uganda, uh, on a steamer when a huge long-necked monster emerged from the lake and attempted to seize a native sitting on the bow of the launch. The man managed to get away from the monster, but Sir Clement Lloyd Hill um, later in his uh, memoirs kind of said, you know, he was he was astonished when this monster appeared, and, and he commented on its long neck and small head. Uh, so maybe there's still a monster or two in Lake Victoria that uh, we haven't looked at for a long time.
1: Yeah. Now, there you mentioned in your handbook a German officer of some sort from
0: 1913. Yes, that's right. his, his, Sorry, go ahead, Scott. Sorry.
1: From 1913, had some kind of a sighting or encounter?
0: That's right. Now his name was Captain, a real tongue twister here, uh, Captain Ludwig Verheer von Stein zu Rauschnitz. And uh, he died in 1934, but um, he was exploring the northern Congo and part of Cameroon uh, in 1913. Um, this he uh, was commissioned by the German government, and uh, the part of the southern Cameroon was a German territory. And he wrote about an animal of a brownish-grey color, size approximating that of an elephant, with a long, flexible neck, a long tail, uh, attacks canoes, and um, also chases away hippos. It lives in the caves that have been washed out by the river in the clay of its shores and sharp ends, climbs ashore in daytime in search of its food, which is said to be entirely vegetable, and uh, he found some footprints nearby uh, that were made by this animal, and he was the first one, I think, to... Uh, Named the animal uh, from his native informants, um, and it was Mokeli and Bambi. And uh, you can see a photograph of him with a pygmy couple um, in the handbook, um, which um, I was lucky to find actually, because that's the only photograph I have of him. And it was uh, in his element in Africa, dressed up in his great white explorer costume and what have you. Now, um, a fascinating report.
1: William Powell. Was in Gabon looking for some kind of a snake, right? The Gabon Viper. And then came sorry, across was, people that were calling name, it um, the Gabon Viper, William Powell. So supposedly. Yes, the
0: Viper. Yeah, I've seen supposedly, up close, and I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to get too close to those.
1: Supposedly, he came across people that called it the Yamawa. was their name for it. Is that correct?
0: I'm not sure about that. Um, the natives have, they have their own names for different things, like, for example, the horned animal. The semi-aquatic horned animal in Cameroon is called the ngubu. But ngubu is used as a general term to describe most large four-legged animals, apart from the elephant. The ngubu is also used to describe the hippo, but they pronounce it in slightly different ways to distinguish between each animal. Ah. So that could be, Nyamala could just be another name. For example, I'll give you another one very quickly. In the Sudan, in southern Sudan, um, if you travel north on the, uh, uh, on the White Nile and then you branch off east to the Sobat River, um, the people there have a language called Lao, L-A-U, but they also use that word to describe a uh, Mokili Mbembe, the big body and the small head. Because when I had my own security firm here in Calgary, um, one of my employees, um, a part-timer, was from the Sudan, and so just for fun, I showed him a picture of a dinosaur and I said, you seen one of those when you were back home. Oh yeah, that's the Lao, that we see that in the river sometimes. I almost fainted. Wow. So, do you know how Roy Mackel
1: got involved in all this? Was he approached by William Powell, or uh, James Powell, I mean, or how did he yeah, get involved?
0: What happened with Ron Macomb was that, um, I think it was back about 1977 or 78, he was speaking at a university in the United States, um, probably giving a talk on because of his involvement uh, early in the years in the 1960s in the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau. And this fellow approached him after the talk and introduced himself as uh, James Powell, who was a herptologist, and he had recently returned from Gabon, um, next door to the Congo, and he was studying rainforest crocodiles there. But while he was living among the Fang people, um, he had a picture book of dinosaurs, and, um, a, a fellow called Michael Obang, who was a witch doctor, um, at the time, pointed out the Diplodocus and said, Oh, I know that animal. He just said, very matter of factly, that's mala That lives in the, in the forest, uh, in the swamps, in the river. And so, um, James Powell, pressed him for more information, and came up with this picture of a large animal looking like a sauropod dinosaur, eats vegetation, hostile towards canoes and hippos and so on, and it lives in the river and the deep swamp pools. And so he took that information to Roy Macall and of course Roy just got hooked on this, and um, that's when they started to look into uh, an, uh, an an expedition into that area, but Roy Um, looked at the maps and uh, found this uh, largely unexplored area um, between the Sangha and the Ubangi rivers in uh, the uh, Congo Brazzaville, Brazzaville being the capital city. Now I say Congo Brazzaville because that's a former French colony and Congo Kinshasa is the former Belgian colony. So he he looked at um, the People's Republic of the Congo Brazzaville and said that's where we should look for this animal because that area... Seems to be largely untouched because at that particular time, back in the early 1980s, um, if an area had not been thoroughly explored by geologists, or it it usually would mark on the map, um, unable to delineate terrain, and that delighted him, and said that's where we'll look for this animal, and that's um, that got him on the road to looking for Makili and Bembe.
1: Now this would have been the the Walla swamps.
0: The Likawala Swamp, that's right. And uh, he he eventually made it there with James Powell uh, in uh, 1979. And that's when they met the missionary Jean Thomas in Mfondo, which is way up in the north area there. And uh, he, of course, Roy was kind of hoping he would get some information. And so he walked up to Roy Macall, who introduced himself, and said to Roy, have you ever heard of an animal called Mokere Bambi? And Roy said, oh yeah, <laughs> I've heard lots of stories about that animal, and of course um, Roy knew he was on the right track, and uh, and June gave him a tremendous amount of assistance in getting eyewitnesses uh, together, and planning a trip down river, which Jean went with him, because uh, Jean was fluent in Lingala, the native language there, so he was able to uh, speak with the, the chiefs of all the different tribes and, and villages, and uh, help Roy to gather information.
1: Now, I've heard Kent Hovind mention a missionary. Is this Gene Thomas the same person?
0: Yeah, I think Gene is the same person. Another missionary that that, uh, was mentioned um, actually saw one of these animals uh, in the river, Joe Ellis, another American, and he Mm -hmm. was further up the river from Gene. Gene had his mission station on the Ubangi River, and if you go north on the Ubangi River, you then go into... Uh, the Motaba River, and then, uh, but there was a village further up on the Taba River with um, another missionary called Joe Ellis. He and his wife were missionaries there, and uh, Joe uh, was going up the Mataba River in uh, in his uh, canoe, which was thirty feet long, had a powerful outboard, and and he was um, just going up there to to take a Bible class in a village somewhere, and he saw this absolutely monstrous thing swim across the river, and then Joe told me himself when I interviewed him by telephone he said this thing gave him such a shock he cut off his engine and started drifting slowly backwards and he said it was like a gigantic snake except it had these diamond like serrations running the whole length of his body now because the, the animal was kind of bobbing up and down a little while it was swimming across the river um, he estimated that the visible part of the, of the animal was longer than his boat which was 30 feet and eventually it made its way out of the river into the forest and disappeared. But he said this thing was just enormous. And by the time he got to his village, he went to the chief and said, be careful, there's a monster out there. And he described what he saw. And the chief said, yeah, we know what that animal is. You know, it's, it's uh, the Monini, which means the animal of the river. And it's like a gigantic snake with serrated frills running down its back. But it also has these four short stubby legs. Um, and it can be dangerous if it's approached and uh, again um, Roy gathered so much information on this and other animals and um, or mystery animals and was able to put all that in his now famous book, Mokali and Bambi Living Dinosaur, uh, which of course is the, the book to go to today for information on Mokeli and Bambi
1: yeah um, in preparation for doing the show I decided to look into and find out if they're had been any sauropod dinosaur fossils found in Africa, and it turns out there have been
0: in Tanzania. Yes. Um, they've been finding these mid-sized sauropod fossils around there. Um, Tanzania was, um, was one of the, the places where early explorers were bringing back stories of strange animals. Um, I think the, the actual range of the Malkalium bendis has been reduced greatly over the past 200 years. Uh, you know, they, they're now confined to these really tough areas to get into the swamps and, and, and remote rivers and everything. And, uh, and in fact, when I showed the Baca Pygmies a photograph from Roy's book of a native compared to a Mokele Mbembe, they ignored it. And I said, well, isn't that... The animal you talk about said, "Yeah, but that's too small." So the animals in the rivers here are much, much bigger. But the rivers being so deep. See, people ask me, "Well, how come an animal that big can hide so so easily?" And I said, "Well, if you've got a river sixty feet deep in the wet season, and you've got an animal with a head height maybe of eighteen or twenty feet, the biggest ones being described as as tall as a giraffe, then it can easily hide underwater. water, and it can hide under water for a few hours, similar to a hippopotamus." Uh, so it's not that hard for big animals to hide in that kind of environment, and, and I think probably in Tanzania there were reports—I'll you know, have to look at my notes—of strange animals like Mokili and Benby being around, um, going back at least a hundred years or so.
1: Now, what about the reports of pterosaur-like animals? Are they? Do they come from the Congo too?
0: We don't get too many reports of those. I know that uh, Roy got reports of pterosaurs in the Congo, and um, that, that kind of puzzled him for a bit until he realized that we're probably talking about large bats. Not huge things, but just bats in general. Uh, we got the same reports uh, in, um, in Cameroon where uh, we showed them pictures of pterosaurs. Um, and they, uh, they said, Oh, yeah, the, we see these animals, they live together in a family group. But I think what they were referring to were fruit bats that you see from time to time in other locations. But, well, like Brian um, explained, pterosaur reports is East Africa, Tanzania, um, Kenya, and Uganda.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, now what about this horned ceratopsian like creature, Amala Natuka?
0: Yeah, the amala antuka—that's uh, lingala for "killer of elephants." Um, that uh, we find most of those reports around the Congo. They—they they tend to spend their time in the forest, and uh, when they cross the river, you know, if the because elephants—you um, know there's game trails in the forest, and sometimes the amala antukas will um, encounter elephants and they will kill them. Now, when um, Herman Regusters went to the Congo, I think 1980. Um he was there um and they were going down the Likwala or Serb river and they came across the bodies of two forest elephants that had been killed. Now the, the, the elephants still had their, their tusks intact so this wasn't punctures that killed them. When they examined the bodies of these elephants they found large puncture marks in their abdomens and the natives said these elephants were killed by the uh, Emela and Tuka, the killer of elephants, and they described this semi-aquatic animal that walks on all fours, has a very large single horn made of polished ivory and a long heavy tail. Um, sounds a little like a Saratopsian, uh, but when we went to Cameroon uh, we had reports of a similar animal, that's just called the Ngubu, and in, when, depending on the pronunciation, that, that means horned one, and um, the pygmy groups that live, the Baka people that live around that area, the chief, his name is Timbo, told us uh, through an interpreter that they had killed one of these things um, probably about eight years before we showed up because what the Pygmies do is they, they they're kind of like they poach elephants. They'll dig a big elephant trap uh, along a forest trail. Then they'll put sharpened spikes in the trap. They'll cover the trap up with leaves and everything. Elephant comes along, falls into the trap, and it dies. Now they came back to the trap uh, about a week later, and they found a strange animal which was almost as big as a forest elephant, but it had two horns, um, you know, side by side, not back to front, poking out. And when I showed them a photograph of the Arsenotherium, um, they said that was most like the animal that they had killed uh, in the tra- in that trap. Now that's the river and the forest, but if you go into the savanna. Uh, which is on the border with the Central African Republic. That's where we're getting reports of big, heavy, four-legged, <laughs> armored animals with four horns and a neck frill that live in small groups. Um, and um, my friend from Cameroon, Piyasima, uh in November 2000, went to that area and visited a village, and they had shot one of these animals about a week beforehand. And... By the time we got there, they'd butchered up for its meat, and the dogs were chewing on the bones, so there was very little left of the animal to, you know, to take for uh, DNA analysis. But um, I told them, well, look, next time they kill one of these things, we need to give them a reward to keep the skull and the, and the horns and everything else, and a bit of flesh, so that we can get it. Um, yeah, analyze, uh, you know, at least uh, through DNA, and see exactly what it is we're dealing with. Is it a new animal of some kind, or is it something from the fossil record uh, that might still be alive today? So it's a question now of just getting hard evidence.
1: Yeah. Well, in the Mokili Mabimbi handbook, there's a photograph of you with a big bone. That's right. Tell us about that. that. Go ahead. No, just tell us the situation about that.
0: Well, we were, um, that was back in 1992, and what happened was that um, uh, we were um, getting uh, feedback from the missionaries, because back then there was no email, so we all wrote letters to each other. So what happened was that um, uh, we were getting reports back from the missionaries that their medical supplies were being stolen, because they run a free clinic there. And when the medical supplies came in from the United States and were supposedly being locked away at the airport until we could, uh, if they could be flown north to the mission station, um, they'd find that um, someone kept stealing their supplies. So um, I managed to get some sponsorship together and uh, flew out four big crates of medical supplies to the Congo. Uh, and um, on aeroflot the russian airliner and and believe me that's another story and um, we got the the uh m- the medical supplies to Infondo we then um, went on a river trip all the way up the Pai river which is directly northeast of the equator river and again very remote place and uh, we stopped off at a fishing camp um, for uh, overnight and uh, that's when i found this large bone it looks like a thigh bone, but then when I, I tried to press the, the local people on what animal this bone came from, and they were kind of reluctant to say, because if it was a hippo, they'd, say, they'd tell me, or an elephant. Uh, but they said, well, it's just a big animal that lives in the river. And uh, Sarah Spear, who is a Canadian nurse from Winnipeg in Manitoba, she's still there. She speaks Lingala fluently, so she was asking them for me, well, what kind of animal? And they, they were kind of didn't want to say, and, uh, and I said, okay, well, can, can I buy this bone from you? And they, they really got worried. Uh, I said, no, oh, no, no, you have to keep that bone stays here with us, and uh, can I take a sample? And they didn't want to do that either. So you see the superstition surrounding these um, mystery animals, uh, That because Mokale and Bembe information is very hard to get in the Congo because... Um, They believe that if they speak openly of any of these animals to outsiders, great misfortune or even death will befall them. Because there was one fellow there, I'll tell you this quickly. His name is Ebitas. Ebitas was a tall, powerfully built hunter, really super nice guy. And um, he um, is not as superstitious as his fellow Congolese, and he spoke openly of Mukaili Mbembe, and he took expeditions to Lake Telly and showed them locations where he'd seen the animals. And shortly after that, his wife became very ill and she passed away from tuberculosis. But the pygmies believed that she was cursed because her husband spoke openly of Mokili and Bambi. So you've got that kind of mystification that you've got to try and work through to get accurate information. And most of the information that came from us were from, like, the Congolese pastors and um, who had been educated in school and were were establishing little churches and villages because they had kind of thrown that fear off. And one of them, Pastor Matena Paul, he saw Mokele and Mbembe when uh, he was a younger man and the military governor general of Brazzaville, his name was Colonel Mwassiposo and uh, Pascal Mwassiposo, we met with him twice and he had seen Mokele and Mbembe three times in the river when he was a young boy. Growing up in the in the villages, so he wasn't afraid to speak of them at all. The other person that helped us was an elephant hunter called Emmanuel Mongomila from the village of Zeké, and uh, he spent most of his time hunting um, out uh, in uh, in the bush. And he had seen Mokele and Bembe's twice um, during, uh, during 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 uh, his hunting expeditions, and he gave us very accurate information on them and uh, descriptions and everything, including that to Roy Macon, but uh, later on, he fell ill with malaria, complicated with dysentery, which would probably kill most people. But he was a strong man. Uh, but they got him down to Brazzaville, to the city hospital, and he was in there for a year recovering. And so, the, again, the people believed that uh, he was cursed because he spoke openly of uh, of mokeli and Bembe. But there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I've, I've got malaria and amoebic dysentery and skin infections and everything there. It kind of makes you wonder if it's really worth it sometimes.
1: Ah. Now, have you attempted to compare that bone with bones from sauropod dinosaurs?
0: Uh, my friend Brian Sass um, in Saskatchewan did that. He, he took that bone and, and compared it to... Um, the, i think it was the hip or thigh bone of uh, an extinct soil pond and it, it seemed almost like it was a perfect match i'm gonna get a hold of him see if he can get that photograph to me again so that i can um, i can um, you know show that to you and make it public
1: yeah that would be very interesting um now how dangerous is the political situation over there most of the time i, I i've heard that that hinders some of the expeditions
0: that go over there well, there's, there's two main events that would happen um, in the event of um, a dangerous political situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. One would be um, a, a federal or a national election. Um, you know, when I was in Congo in 1992, uh, the president was a gentleman called, called Pascal Lissouba, who was a very nice man and uh, very forward-thinking. Um, from the 1960s up to 1992, it was... Um, I believe it was Denis sassoon Nguesso, And uh, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, they weren't able to um, maintain various satellite states financially, like the Congo Republic, which was officially Marxist. And so um, Denis Sassou Nguesso lost the election to uh, Pascal Nasubu And then in 1992, we were just leaving, and a civil war broke out between Pascal Nasubu and and uh, Dennis Sassou guesso and, Gesso, and uh, that resulted in Pascal Lesubo fleeing to London England where he's still living and uh, Dennis Sassou guesso retaking power uh, so uh, getting close to elections there that's a pretty dangerous time because everybody's on tender hooks another dangerous time would simply be the assassination of um, the state president that would send the country into turmoil and also outbreaks of, of very dangerous uh, viruses like uh, ebola Uh, you know ebola um, if it's not contained quickly um, can can just rip right through a large population uh, that has no access to um, proper medical facilities and we saw that happen in gabon some years ago and uh, of course it's still an active virus in africa but it's being much better contained so there's things like that 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 tend to put off expeditions just out of personal safety.
1: Yeah, and and you probably, you do, you never know when something like that is going to happen while you're there.
0: Well, that's true. I know that um, it, well, the camera crew that were with us for uh, a documentary that was never shown for some reason back in uh, 2004, I think it was. Um, um, it was for A&E and um, the lady, the the director was telling us that she was in Cameroon at the time of an attempted coup against the president, Paul Beer and um, everywhere she went because she was trying to get out of the country there was roadblocks everywhere, soldiers police officers, everybody was under suspicion, it's a very dangerous time for any foreigner to be there Um, and so uh, you know, you, you have to kind of gauge the situation carefully. I mean, going out to look for Michele and Bambi at the right time of the year is one thing. But making sure that the country is stable and that there's not going to be any complications when you're there, that's quite another thing. But we are considering going to Gabon next year because Gabon has been a very good, stable, economically healthy country. That's where the New Mala was first uh it uh, was first discovered by uh, James Powell and we feel that our return to Gabon would be very much overdue because um, maybe nobody's been going there looking for Nyamala, and uh, so maybe it's a this is an opportunity to go to an unspoiled very tranquil area set up some game cameras use some aerial drones and and submersible drones and uh, perhaps that might uh, change our fortune somewhat
1: yeah, I've been using aerial drones at Lake Champlain for the last couple of years. Um, well, I've been looking at. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Oh, I was going to say that uh, John Kirk participated in one of your expeditions,
0: didn't he? John and I have been uh, to Cameroon twice. Uh, we went uh, with um, the uh, with the film crew from ANE, one two thousand two. Anyway, uh, and. Uh, he came back with it again in 2009. Now, John and I um, tend to get sick pretty easy if we're not careful what we eat and drink. So we're sitting in the base camp quite far up on the Jar River. This is called Camp Catfish. I don't know why they call it that, but they do. And um, my younger son, Andrew, who was 19 at the time, him and Michel Bellot and the other French, when they went further up the river uh, to visit the Enki Falls, this big waterfall. Yeah, John and I were just sitting there chatting at the base camp and suddenly we heard these massive vocalizations just start up further down the river from us and we looked at each other and we thought, what is that? And, um, and so we listened to it and I thought, this is a big animal and it's getting closer. And it was in the river somewhere so I stepped forward to activate my camera just to capture the vocalizations and then that's when we heard the sound of the outboard engine of the team coming back and... Um, they, they came back early for some reason, I don't know why, and uh, but as soon as the sound of the outboard engine was coming down the river, the vocalization stopped. But we explained the sound as best we could to Michelle and to the two river guides that were with us, uh, Henri and, and, and Blaise, and they became very frightened. Oh yeah, we've heard that, that's the voice, the voice of, of the Mokili and Bendy, you know, and, and they didn't want to go back down river after that. So we, we stayed at the camp overnight and then eventually packed up and went back down to um, a, World Wildlife, a World Wildlife Fund camp further down the river um, because our visas were running out and we had to kind of get back home again. But uh, we at least, John and I, heard the vocalizations of what our guides were telling it was on Mokeli and Bembe. So I'm telling uh, my friend Michelle below, look, you really must start putting these game cameras up and leading them there for. However long it takes, three months, six months, and then you go back and, and collect them. Uh, because I'm convinced going on the footprints that we've discovered, and you've seen these big three clawed footprints and, and these yeah. other strange footprints, I'm convinced that if we're having, if we can put up game cameras or trail cameras in those locations and leave them there for a few months and then go back, um, we'll get something pretty spectacular on film.
1: Now, the sounds that you and John heard, did they sound like the recording that Herman Mergoosers recorded?
0: A little different from that. I've listened to the cleaned-up version of Herman's um, uh, vocalizations. They don't match any large known African animal. I know that there's been analyzations done before. The ones that John and I heard of were a, kind of a, like a between a roar and a growl. Um, and uh, at the end of it, it, it had a kind of... You know, I can't even describe it, um, but whatever this animal was, it was very, very large, and it was moving slowly north on the river, and um, when we did, because uh, John was much better than I was at trying to recreate this vocalization, and uh, that's when the guides got scared and said, that's definitely Mokele and Bendy. It, it sounded like it was a bigger animal uh, than the one that Herman Augustus had recorded back in 1981.
1: Now, Robert Mullen was on that expedition as well,
0: right? Well, he came with us uh, when we did the Monster Quest expedition in 2009, and um, that's when all these new um, eyewitnesses were coming in from villages farther north, and they were because they drew on the ground. Um, okay, show me the Lakila Bendi, Mokelend because They came from different groups, and one couple that was um, on a fishing trip down river they came to the village, and. Uh, they drew the animal on the ground and, but they call it the maku in Bembu, which is a different language used in the north bordering Nigeria, And but they all drew a picture of the same type of animal even though the, the names were slightly different, so they're all talking about the same thing, and as you could see by the drawings in, in the Mokili and Bembi handbook, um, it, this animal is unmistakably look, look, a dead ringer for a sauropod dinosaur
1: yeah, um what is your opinion on Marcelin Agnana's sighting?
0: Okay, well, Marcelin Agnana, uh, he was our principal contact in 1985. And um, sadly, he didn't do too much to help us out in the beginning, uh, you know, because we were all young men. There was four of us, all in our mid-twenties. And uh, we weren't these 50-something academics from, um, from major universities. So everything was very slow motion for us. So um, we... We had Marcelin and, and Anya and another gentleman that was his assistant at the time, Josie Borgi, um, they both came with us and uh, they were supposed to be our interpreters and everything. And um, But going, backtracking a little to to 1983 when he claimed a sighting of Mokele and Bembe at Lake Telly and um, I discussed this at length with Roy Macall. Roy was unconvinced, he thought that what Marcelin saw was a large freshwater African turtle called the Trinox Triangus. Yeah, they get big. Yeah, they can grow up to uh, a shell um, uh, a length of about two meters. Um, But uh, Martin um, was adamant he saw Mokili and Bembe. All the other Congolese people with him uh, were were deeply um, frightened when they saw this animal. But when we got out there two years later, <clears throat> we couldn't find any of these eyewitnesses that were with him that, that, uh, during this claimed Mokeli and Bambi sighting. What Roy thinks is that Marcelin embellished, embellished, uh, his story just to bring more scientific expertise and money out to the Congo, and Marcelin would be their point man, uh, when it comes to future expeditions. Mm-hmm. But when we went there to Lake Tally, and it took us five days of slogging through the forest to get there, and about the last, Probably mile or so surrounding the lake, it was nothing but swamp, and we're having to hop from one exposed tree root to another to get to the lake. And uh, you you slide into that swamp, you come out s- smelling very badly, and we we had to dodge snakes, gaboon vipers, and, and uh, we saw pythons and all that. And, and on one occasion, we saw a cobra, a cobra, black cobra. They're very dangerous. But we eventually got to the lake, and you're standing on a kind of a mattressy bed made up of of dead leaves that have accumulated over how many hundreds of years so you're walking on a kind of like a spring mattress and we had uh, wooden platforms we had to put our tents on but when I asked Marcelin can you show me the location where you saw Mokeli and Bambini?" He, he pointed to a place in the lake but when we went out there on our boat we, we plumbed the depth and we, we we thought it was far too shallow for, for, for the size of animal he claimed to have seen but one of the things that frustrated us was that the the elders of the Boa of the village of Boa, who are regarded as the owners of Lake Teli, um, they were very reluctant to let us go to the north of the lake. Now, that is where these water channels called Malibos run from the swamps into Lake Teli, and apparently it's these water channels that were used by Mokale and and to to enter and leave the lake. And as you know, there was a story of back in 1960 where uh, the pygmies speared one of these creatures yep, to death.
1: I'm familiar with the story. And well,
0: supposedly they, they um, died well, from, it ha- from yeah, eating it.
1: Supposedly they died from eating the meat.
0: Well, what happened was that the, the pygmies that live around the lake um, don't like outsiders, you know. They, they're called the Bangondis and they are the most... I hate to use the word primitive, but, but, they, but they hide in the forest. They don't like white outsiders too much, and uh, they, um, they fish at Lake Tally. And so what the story went uh, through, because Roy um, spoke to a couple of people that were alive at the time. In fact, in Gene Thomas's mission station, two of those pygmies that were um, at the killing of, of the Mokele and Bambi were there. Uh, at the mission station, and Gene and was able to relay this information to Roy. This wasn't just a story from 25, 30 years before Roy showed up. There were two eyewitnesses there who were just young men at the time. And the story goes that, um, in spite of the fact that the the pygmies were very afraid of the Mokele and Bembis they got fed up with their fishing activities being disturbed every day by the animals moving into the lake. So they, they built <coughs> a large stake barrier across the entrance to one of these malibos, a very large one. And um, the, the following day when they, they noticed uh, one or two of the animals trying to break through the barrier, they—they they, because they've got these massive elephant spears, uh, they speared one of these animals to death, and then when it died uh, they cut it up into slices, which took forever because the animal was so big, and they roasted the meat and ate it, and the story goes they died shortly afterwards so that may be for two reasons either they didn't cook the meat properly and died from food poisoning or they died from natural causes anyway because forest pygmies don't live that long they they live to 25 maybe to 35 years of age their lifespan is very short pygmy women marry at the age of 12 so you know, I've got a photograph of a pygmy woman who looks like she's probably seventy, but she was in real life about thirty-five. Wow! So they don't live that long anyway. And uh, so Roy talked to these two, by now elderly Bangombi people at Roy at Jean's uh, mission station, and they described this whole scenario to him. They also described the strange kind of um, sh- noise, the vocalisation the animal made when it was being speared to death. Now, Roy, um, in his investigations, were told that Mokelian Bembis are generally silent. They don't make any vocalizations. But when we interviewed the Baka people in Cameroon, they said that the Mokelian Bembis there, or Lacula Bembis, have a, a sort of inflatable sac um, under their throats, uh, you know, like a bullfrog. Yeah. It inflates yeah. in order to make noise, so, a vocalization. So that I thought was a very interesting um, piece of information.
1: Yeah, well, um, orangutans have some similar structures like that, too. Air sacs. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, So how much contact have you had with Adam Davies?
0: Um, Just a couple of times. Adam and I have chatted, and we've been back and forth on Facebook. And I know that he did go out um, one time, almost on a solo expedition, to find Mokali and Bambi. And uh, he did um, bring back some interesting information about the uh, the Malkinian babies having a spike or protrusion on the back of its head. Uh, That's something we never picked up on. So I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Well, they have have um, found some fossils from uh, South America of sauropods that had spikes on their uh, vertebrae. So that may be a similar structure. I don't know.
0: Well, there are reports of those animals coming out of places like uh, Venezuela, um, also Bolivia. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's a, a river in Bolivia, uh, the name doesn't come to me at the moment, where um, similar animals to Michele and Bambi have been reported. And I know that David Wetzel, um, a colleague of mine from uh, Concord, New Hampshire... I uh, know Dave, I know from, we he is. ...this is a target area, but he had engine trouble and uh, they didn't make it all the way. I but have his book. ...similar reports.
1: I have Dino Dave's book. What's that? Which book? Oh, what is the name of it? Uh, Chronicles of Dinosauria, I think it's called.
0: Okay, Dinosaur... Cre- yeah, I've heard of the book. I, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. The most recent book that I bought was um, The Man Who Filmed Nessie with t- um, Tim Denswell's Tim uh, uh, son. A- yeah. Written by his son, Angus Densdale. Yep. And that's a fascinating read in his own right. Yep, Absolutely.
1: And you, you met Tim
0: Dimsdale. I did indeed. Now, back in 1985, um, earlier that, the, before I went out to the Congo for the first time, I attended a, uh, there was a, a conference held by the International Society of Cryptozoology at Brighton University on, on England's East Coast. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so um, I went there, and that's where I met Roy Macall, Richard Greenwell, Bernard Hoibermans, and Tim Dimsdale. And, um, after the, uh, the conference, cause we all convened to a restaurant where we sat down and chatted, and, um, you yeah, know, Roy was a uh, super nice guy, so was, uh, Bernard Harverman's, very gracious man, Tim Dinsdale, too, in fact, on my return from the Congo in eighty later in 86, I, I visited him at his home on his invitation, and I found him to be such a, a gracious man, a well-spoken, intelligent, um, very generous with his time, and um, he kept all his messy memorabilia in a wooden shed at the back of his house, uh, which was called the Nutter's Nook. <laughs> 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 we sat there, and uh, and he was a, such a wonderful man, Tim Denzil. He la- he left us far too soon. Yeah, unfortunately. I was, uh, a year away from getting married. I mean, I was uh, twenty. 9 at the time and Tim was uh, 62 and uh, in fact he passed away 63. Um, after 63 after because every morning he would go out for a jog before breakfast and I believe that uh, that's when he had his fatal heart attack well he and spent um, he spent a
1: quarter of a century on Loch Ness
0: yes I know saw amazing. it three and, times uh, in fact um, I think back over those years though when I met, I met Roy uh, sorry I met uh I met uh, Tim Dinsdale, and um, he was 62 when I met him, and now I'm 62. So the time really flies, and it makes you kind of more determined to, to find some evidence of some crypto before you just get too old to do it anymore. But th- my main focus now is to encourage more young people, capable people, to, to take up where I'm going to have to leave off one day. And Michelle Ballot, he's going out again to Cameroon in October. Yeah. Uh, but he's not getting any younger either. So I think um, well, hopefully we'll see a generation of new explorers up and coming.
1: I'm 56 and I've been looking for champs since 1992. So you did the math, you know, so I'm getting up there
0: <laughs> Well, you know, I think the technology is going to do it for us one day. Because um, now, you see, I've been looking at the equipment for next year. Now there's uh, aerial drones that are waterproof. You can, you can dunk them in rivers and lakes and they still fly. Yeah. The cameras are wide-angled, high-definition, or K4, and um, there's a, a submersible drone that I'm looking at getting that has about 450 feet of cable. You can just guide it all the way down there using your cell phone or, or a handheld device, and yeah. you can film all kinds of things down there. So that I think that this, the technology is going, to, is going to help us to succeed in the end. Let's hope. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what are your opinions on some of the alternative theories about Mokile Mbembe, like a giant monitor lizard, or a uh, giant soft-shell turtle, or possibly even some kind of a water rhinoceros like Endricotherium?
0: Well, none of those theories, when you compare them to all the information we have, um, I mean, a monitor lizard 15 or 20 feet long is still a pretty good discovery, but it doesn't match the, the huge bulbous body of the Mokili and Bembe, the four stubby legs, the long flexible tail, the long long thin neck, and the head is very small like a lizard or snake so when I show the alternative, that I do the flip chart pictures to the natives, what I do first of all is I show them pictures of North American animals such as uh, the elk and the bear and <clears throat> so on, and they, they don't relate to those, no, those animals don't live here and then I show them um, African animals like lions, like leopards, elephants, hippos, gorillas, and, and yeah, they know all those, we know them, we know them. And then I showed them the dinosaur pictures. Most of those are rejected, um, with the exception of two every time. And, uh, one is the sauropod, Mokelia Bembe, and the other is, um, is the uh, cer- ceratopsians with the neck frills, the armored body, the multiple horns. And they are Cynotherium, at least in Cameroon, where it's um, semi aquatic, it's got two of these big side by side horns and it yeah. kills elephants. So, you know, but the, the when I press them and show them the rhinoceros or I show them um, other, you know, extinct animals such as, or a large monitor, it says Laquila Bembe, it says Mokelin Bembe, they always reject it. No, 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 that's not it. And as you can see by the drawings that they make on the ground, these are definitely Sauropodium. In in their configuration.
1: Well, the most convincing thing to me are the footprints. I mean, those clearly resemble sauropod footprints.
0: So if massive. It's, yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. If, massive it's, if it's not
1: a sauropod, it's something very convergently like one.
0: Absolutely. <clears throat> now you notice uh, what I did uh, with the McKenna and Bambi handbook. Um, I, sh- I put together some color illustrations of several animals, like, like a sauropod dinosaur, a giraffe, um, a, a rhinoceros, an elephant, another sauropod, and then a hippo, and uh, compared them to other different animals, and every time the sauropod was picked out as mochili and Bembe. Now, going on the footprints, as you can see, uh, they are massive. They're three-toed. Nothing I can think of could make prints like that. Um, so on one picture, you've got the massive three-toed prints, someone put his boot beside it. So you can see that this animal has a footprint, three toes, as big as a frying pan. And in another um, sandbank they showed smaller prints, still three-toed. So these could be adult and juvenile Mokele and Bambis, uh moving around. So definitely those footprints were not made by any known animal uh, today, but definitely by something like Mokili and Bembe.
1: Well, something very interesting that is extremely relevant to this whole debate is the fact that they have been finding sauropod trackways apparently made by only two sets of feet. And a lot of the thinking about these particular types of footprints is mm-hmm. that the animal was in water and was only walking on its front feet, being
0: buoyed yeah, by water. True. You know? Yeah, they were pulling themselves along by, by their forelimbs, um, either just crossing to, uh, to move to another area or perhaps escaping from a large predator of that particular time. Yeah. Um, but as you can see by the drawings, uh, the native drawings in the Mokele and Bambi handbook, um, you can see that uh, the animals that they are drawing on the ground there cannot be mistaken for anything else. Now, just as a side note, um, one researcher in Australia, um, Rex Gilroy, wrote a book on uh, of an animal called the Buttinger, uh which he believes is uh, like a, a bipedal carnivore, a bit like a T-Rex. And Australia does have the Allosaurus fossils, uh, which I find interesting. And uh, they're like a smaller cousin to the T-Rex. And he's actually made plaster casts. Of these big three-toed prints out in the Australian bush,
1: I've seen where, pictures uh, uh, of them. Go ahead. I said I've seen pictures of the footprints you're talking about, or the casts.
0: Right, and um, the out there, of course, their, their cattle ranches are, are just enormous things. And uh, see, here in Canada and the USA, cattle ranchers can be called, <coughs> they can be called uh, cowboys, but out there they call them jackaroos. And these uh, jackaroos report finding these big three-toed prints um, where cattle had been grabbed by something and and half-eaten. So there's definitely a large carnivorous reptile of some kind stalking the outback of Australia.
1: I've also heard speculations about possible megalania surviving too in Australia.
0: I I think that's very likely. Uh, Farmers themselves have... uh, been seeing um, glimpses of gigantic uh, reptiles, like uh, they look like monitors but as you know they're much much bigger, twice the size of uh, Yeah, the dragon
1: 20-25 feet five. long that's how big Megalonia got about 20 feet long, 25, somewhere in there Yeah,
0: 20 to 25 feet and they believe that uh, there's still a few of these monsters out there in the outback because again Australia is just so vast Um, It would take a lifetime to explore even just some of it and also in Papua New Guinea. There's been reports of these gigantic four-legged animals including dinosaur-like animals in Papua, New Guinea
1: Well, I'm sure you probably heard about the plesiosaur-like reports from the Hawksbury River
0: too. Yes, indeed, um, there's just so much to explore, and I think what we need to do is encourage lots of uh, a young generation of cryptozoologists to start taking on um, these investigations uh, where they live, you know, um, yeah. certainly here in, in North America, I'm hoping to conduct some uh, investigations into several lake monsters, Lake Champlain being one, Lake memphra being another,
1: mm.
0: uh, Lake Okanagan. And, um, and one or two other places, maybe even uh, Turtle Lake in Manitoba, which apparently has a monster too. So, but going back, to, um, I think, uh, 13 years, Dave, Dave, no sorry, 7 years, Dave Wetzel and I met at Lake Okanagan in British Columbia, and we actually caught a glimpse of the Ogopogo as it surfaced near our boat.
1: I was at Lake Memphis May God, like, last summer, the first time I had been in like 23 years.
0: Now that runs into uh, New York State,
1: I believe. Uh, well, no, it's further, further uh, east in Vermont. Lake Champlain uh, goes into New York State, but uh, Mifamagog God is, is in Vermont and runs into Canada.
0: That's right. The, the bulk of it is in uh, Quebec. Yeah. And. Um, I actually spoke to um, the senior investigator there some years ago uh, who was collecting all the reports, who sadly, Jacques Bovard who is sadly no longer with us. But he, um, he made it his mission to collect as many reports as possible. And he was a diver. He, he, he dived into the lake a few times. But going yeah. on the description of that animal, I don't think I would like to be in the water except if I'm in a boat.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, I was swimming in Lake Champlain this past summer doing investigations where the Olsen video happened if you're familiar with that the 2009 champ video so I was Most in the water
0: fascinating video isn't it?
1: yes when it what first, do you make
0: of that What's when, your thoughts?
1: when it first comes on the video it looks like a big turtle and then as its head is coming up the the shape of the head appears to change shape and it no longer looks like a turtle so it was some kind of large animal size estimates or generally that whatever it was, was around six feet long, so it's too big to be a, a snapping turtle. So it's, all I can say at this point is it appears to be some kind of a turtle or plesiosaur like animal. So. Well, it, I think it was filmed early in the morning, wasn't it? When yes. It was very peaceful yeah.
0: and calm. Right when the sun's um, coming out. It was, was quite calm. So yeah. So that, that was a good time to film. I, I believe that they also call that messy weather. Yeah. Uh, a good time to see Nessie is when it's flat, calm, and peaceful, and, yep. and uh, you know, they, there's no disturbance in the water.
1: Yeah, the guy was just out doing his morning walk, he lived around there, and there it was, and he turned his cell phone on and got this kind of blurry video, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. video, it's one of the better pieces of champ evidence that we have.
0: It was an excellent uh, piece of video, and I, I was greatly intrigued by it, and uh, so now that, of course, you know, I'm um, maybe there might be one more African expedition left in me, uh, but I'd certainly like to focus more on the lake, uh, lake monsters or cryptids here in North America. Well, hopefully... Especially, especially ho- since Dave Webster and I actually saw Ogopogo.
1: Hopefully we can get together next summer at Lake Champlain, I'm hoping.
0: Yeah, that would be good, and I'm sure I'll have, uh, some of the equipment that I've been hoping to get by then, and, um, like I said, they got these, the, the new generation of drones can stay in the air for 30 minutes at a time. They're waterproof. They've got really good cameras on them. And uh, now I'll be looking into this submersible drone that we can operate underwater as well. Yeah. Um, now, I noticed that uh, a lot of people, um, when we see um, Champ, they're not just in boats, but they're fishing. I'm wondering if that somehow attracts the animals closer to the boats.
1: Perhaps. Um I mean, it's almost certain that they, their primary diet item is fish.
0: Right. There was if a you got, report... If you're lure fishing, right, as I've done, if you're lure fishing, yeah. and you're bringing fish in to, to attract it by the lures, that might, in turn, attract uh, a champ.
1: Well, in 2016, uh, the Asahi Broadcasting Network, Network sponsored an expedition that I was involved with, and we had underwater camera rigged with baited salmon, and something came up and touched the bait on camera. I'm not sure if I've seen that. I, I can send you. I can send you the clip. I, I posted it on YouTube, but it's really interesting. It looks like maybe possibly a, a tail or a flipper-like structure of some kind of animal. Right. It could have been a giant eel. It's it's kind of ambiguous, but it's definitely something alive came up and. Didn't bite the bait, but touched it. Was curious about. Mm. It. So that's one of the more that's interesting, interesting. That's one of the more interesting things that's happened in the expeditions as I've been involved with over the last few years.
0: Right, that's interesting. Now there is a marine biologist, an English lady that's been uh, um, that's been doing a lot of work in Lake Champlain. Um, she she was interviewed a few times on uh, on these shows. Yeah, uh, I think her name is Ellie.
1: Ellen Marsden.
0: yes. Ellen, Ellen I've actually been back and forth with her in a couple of emails um, just to get just to get her thoughts on this. Of course you know she's very skeptical. yeah um, I did mention that well what about uh, the possibility of um, say uh, echolocation something's echolocating in the lake is that possible? and she, she said well fish make the same sound so she doesn't feel there's anything unusual there but uh, I, one of the ideas that I came up with I have a number of recordings of echolocations from made by dolphins and others made by whales I'm wondering what would happen if we played those underwater um, with an underwater microphone to see if that might well, I don't know provoke something
1: we tried that in 2016 it had no work with it so
0: ok ok yeah, alright um so uh, it, I think it's just an because a know in Loch Ness years ago they had a submarine called Viperfish yep. that they had sent down there but see Loch Ness is, the, the visibility is very poor under the water because the water is so heavily stained with peat I'm wondering if perhaps a mini submarine would work better at Lake Champlain
1: probably but we still have water visibility problems there too and it, and it fluctuates uh huh in 2017, we deployed uh, underwater cameras, and the footage was useless because of the water clarity. And oh, you I just, see. You just never know when it's going to be. Sometimes it's algae blooms; all sorts of stuff can affect the water clarity. Then, in 2013, right. we did the same thing and had great visibility, but no luck getting one of the animals to come on camera.
0: Okay. Right. Well, I guess it's a—it's really a, a, a game of patience. Yeah, maybe, it's a crapshoot. It? Um, you, you just got to
1: be lucky, you know, and be there at the right time in the right place, you know. I mean, it's a big lake. It's 129 miles long, but it's only 400 feet deep, so.
0: Right. I it's, was thinking it wasn't that deep, so yeah. that might make things a little easier, but... Um, but yeah, I'm thinking that there's, there's got to be a way that we can find that would uh, attract one or more of these animals. Because yeah. I know that people say they've seen small ones, young ones. Yeah, I and would think. Yeah.
1: I would think the baited cameras would be the route to
0: go. Right, and I've heard reports that they come into the shallows chasing uh, small fish uh, small fish. Well, they're seen uh, all over the lake. You like know, that. I
1: don't think there's one particular spot that they hang out in. They're seen all over the lake so yeah Yeah. sometimes they do come into the shallows
0: right well i think uh, it's just a question of of being so well organized and having the right equipment and being patient and the right conditions all that coming together it's yeah it's a tall order but nevertheless sooner or later we're going to get something i'm sure
1: things have happened over the years since i've been looking that that encourage me so i'm going to keep trying
0: well, that's good. It's interesting that when I went to Lake Okanagan and met Dave Wetzel there, we, we just, on, the, just out of a, uh, on a whim, we hired a boat and off, and because I had my wife and my younger son with me, and David had his wife and his mother-in-law and his son and his daughter with him. We had a, a fairly big boat with a canvas um, covering, you know, sort of on of these family cruise things, and we just decided on a whim to go out onto the lake, and Dave said, okay, go this way, go that way, and let's stop here. This is supposedly a hot spot. So we just sat there for a minute, and the first thing that we we noticed was small fry fish just bubbling up on the surface. You know, when when a predator, of a predator's coming after them. Yeah. And then um, after that, they, we just saw these three big humps come up on the surface, and my son Andrew said he he thought he saw a head briefly break the surface, and they were there maybe for uh, just a few seconds. Then the animal started moving towards uh, the uh, towards the shore, and then it went down. Now, we did have a depth reader on the boat, and we were in about 190 feet of water at that time. And um, and this was a hot spot that Dave said that we might see Ogropogo, and lo and behold, something came up, and um, we were just, you know, taken aback by us, and it just left these enormous waves in its wake. And uh, so we promised ourselves to maybe... Go back there again in future, but uh, but he's but I told him well why don't we compromise and why don't we meet at Lake Champlain or, or Lake Magog? they're closer to home for him because mm-hmm. he lives in Vermont and uh, we could perhaps uh, do some work there and, uh, and hopefully we can do that next year or maybe yeah. later this year or at least at Lake Manfromegod. Yeah. Well, once the once the COVID nineteen thing is over, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know i mean you're probably in lockdown like us yeah and um you know it's it's not a good thing to deal with but i'm hoping that um this is a seasonal thing that'll blow over and then by when the summer's in full swing we'll be free to move around a lot more and and get some research under our belts
1: well i'm hoping to be at lake champlain in august if this virus thing is over so we'll see
0: that'll be great Yeah, yeah absolutely and we can look at getting a proper boat. I noticed photographs with you with a boat that had a plesiosaur image on the front. That was my Uh, late partner's,
1: Will Gurginnis' boat. He passed away from cancer last year. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, um, he had to sell the boat for his medical bills. He also had a side-scan sonar unit we were using, too. Oh,
0: okay, okay. Now, <clears throat> up here in Canada, of course, we have uh, a kind of a socialized medicine. It's paid through our taxes, just like France and the U.K. Um, and I, I kind of wondered why the United States never adopted that. But, see, uh, Britain and France brought in the national health care system just after World War II when we had a small population. Uh, so I guess it was easier to implement that when you only had 20 million people in the country. Uh, you know but um, I often wonder why um, the, but being a different a totally different part of the world why the United States didn't kind of go the same way because it would it would give everybody access to um, health care because if I, if I have uh, anything wrong with me I can go to the hospital and get treated or whatever and not have to pay a penny for it even though it does come out of my taxes. So how did you wind up in Alberta? Well, uh, that's an interesting story. I, I decided um, uh, that we, well, my wife and I, back in, in the early nineties, she was a qualified nurse. I was working as a as a, um, a social worker, teaching um, profoundly mentally handicapped adults. Uh, I was teaching them basic educational. Uh, things and so, um, my wife had a number of cousins in Canada who were telling us how great it was and everything. And she wanted because uh, she didn't have much in the way of family in the UK. She had a few cousins, but everybody was going to Canada, including her brother and her sisters and everything. So we thought, okay, um, let's give the new world a chance, so to speak. So uh, we moved to Toronto, uh, uh, Ontario, uh, back in early '94, and. Um, she went back into nursing, but I found it a little more difficult to get back into social services. But, you know, we were there for about seven years. Our older son, Matthew, was three years old at the time. He was born in the UK. Our second son, Andrew, was born a month after we landed. So he's a Canuck already. And uh, so we were in Toronto for seven years. And then um, most of our family wanted to focus around Calgary. Um, which, you know, is in Alberta, right in the middle of the country. This is cowboy country, ranch country. And so um, we moved here. I was a little concerned about coming here because my wife is uh, of Chinese extraction, and Calgary's got this reputation of being a redneck town. But we got here, and we found it was just as diverse as Toronto was, a smaller city. And so we we came here. in 2002 and uh, we, we settled down I had my own business for 14 years which I sold recently after my wife became ill with cancer which is doing much better now, thank the lord well, and, um, so we are kind of settled here in the middle of the country and it's a great place in Canada to be, um, you'll find that Canada is a pretty easy going laid back kind of a place if you've never been here before
1: I've been, and, I've been uh, up there a couple of times
0: uh, ok, uh, where did you go?
1: I went across uh, Quebec and Ontario, going to Michigan. This would have been nineteen ninety-seven. Being in
0: France, yeah. But but I but I find here in Alberta, this is Bigfoot country or Sasquatch country,
1: dinosaur Um, country too.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, the the Badlands, I've been up there a few times and been to the museum and, uh, you know, and uh, you go on an official walk where they show you big fossils that are still in the rocks, you're not allowed to touch them. And um, when I was, uh, back in 2002, I think it was, I I went down to visit Bill Redsamen, a wonderful wildlife artist in in Arkansas, Mm -hmm. to give a talk on... Dinosaurs and Mokele and Bambi, and we went through to Oklahoma and we met um, Michael Humphreys and his brother Tim uh, Who lived right in the Kiamichi mountain area there a little town called Hanobi and I yeah. went uh, up into the forest with them And we could hear bigfoot screams up there at night uh, These guys are always armed when they go into that kind of territory and uh, something threw a rock at me Um came flying out of nowhere. It was a big pear-shaped rock, and I just stepped in front of an oak tree, and this thing hit the oak tree so hard, it echoed. It took a massive big chunk of bark right out of the tree. Yeah, foots uh, are notorious for throwing trees. rocks. And so we went back down the deer trail, got back to the truck, and, and something had ripped open uh, Tug's uh, toolbox and scattered his tools all over the place, you know, like a toolbox with padlocks, and something grabbed it. You could see the um, the, the the steel um, lid of this toolbox had been curled in, and something grabbed it and ripped it open. And so, by the time we threw all these tools back in the, in the truck and started heading down the, the trail, the forest trail, it was dark, and because we were using flashlights back and forth and uh, or spotlight uh, handheld spotlights, and apparently. Bigfoot's there don't like that, but but you could hear them screaming and hollering at us, and we eventually got out of there. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I'm not going back in there again without a rifle, that's for sure. Yeah. That was quite an experience. We actually found Bigfoot prints. I've actually got a cast of one of them. And, uh, with, and uh, the you Mountains, which is about 80,000 square kilometers of... of um, a forest, um, you know, apparently there's been a lot of Bigfoot sightings down there, and we actually found trees that were bent over, you've probably seen that, you know, where they're bent over into yeah. a park, or you know, bits of wood put down into a cross that um, Bigfoot searchers think that these are probably crossing points, yeah. so Bigfoot found those, and, and later on, driving through British Columbia... Little, a lonely part of the highway, I noticed some trees bent over in the same fashion. So maybe this is a Bigfoot crossing point in British Columbia that very few people have taken any, any notice of.
1: One impression I got of Canada is that there, there are wide open spaces up there. You could hide a herd of dinosaurs and nobody'd know about it because there's large areas that nobody lives it's just well, wide it's open
0: spaces yeah. Canada is the second biggest landmass in the world, it's only got a population of 35 million, Yeah, most of the people live kind of in the middle of the country, down to the border with the states, I mean I could walk over the border into the USA without ever being noticed, there's vast places, uh, remote parts of the border, you can just walk across the country Yeah, uh, into, into the US or into Canada without anybody ever noticing, and um but even driving from Calgary through to British Columbia to uh, these little towns out there, you, you are crossing vast uninhabited areas. Yep. Uh, you know, most of them have been turned into national parks, but they're, they're still very remote. And uh, I've seen lots and lots of bears on my travels there too. So, but um, going north into BC into the Pacific Northwest, um, there are because British Columbia, as you know, has um, huge amounts of forest. Um, there that um, I think is over 193 million square miles of forest that most of that has never been explored. In fact, um, over 73 aircraft have crashed into the forests of British Columbia that have never been found. So um, it's just a vast, vast area. And, uh, of course, Sasquatch legends um, are really entrenched in the native groups there. Yeah. And uh, they tell you places don't go. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with a series of books written by a retired detective from San Jose called David Politis. And he's written a series of books called Missing 411. I've heard Uh, of him. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I just said I've heard of him. I haven't read any of his books, but I have heard of him.
0: Well, I, I've been reading some of these books in relation to the wilderness areas up here and also in the States, and, and people just vanish into thin air. You know, nothing's ever found of them in most cases. And uh, I think recently somewhere in uh, one of the areas where there's a lot of disappearances, they found a 124-year-old Andalus rifle propped up on a, against a tree, you know. Like yeah. somebody had just left it there, and um, I know that uh, in Alaska uh, you have this place called the Alaska Triangle, where you know over sixty thousand people have vanished in the last what ten or twenty years, and nobody knows where they've gone. there's no sign of them. And uh, but they have legends of their own, Bigfoots and Ottermen, and, and other strange animals up there.
1: Well, you got a lake monster up there too, like Iliamna.
0: That's right. Yeah, it's a place I'd very much like to visit sometime, Um, but um, the one place I do want to go, and I've been promising myself this for a long time, is Loch Ness, of course. People say, oh, where do you go to Loch Ness? Well, there's nothing in there. Well, it depends. Roy Mackle, on my many conversations with him, um, thought that Nessie would come and go. Now, he didn't think that they were anything more than these long, snake-like whales, these primitive whales like Basilosaurus or yeah. yeah. but the description doesn't match that, because if you look at the land sightings, these are bulbous-bodied, four-flippered monsters with long, thin necks and small heads. Sounds like Plesiosaurus. So, uh, go ahead. I
1: said it sounds like a plesiosaur.
0: Something like that, at least, um, yeah. at least in the configuration. But um, but Nessie is definitely a fish eater. I mean, the salmon run into Loch Ness every year, so maybe Nessie is following migrating salmon around. Um, you know, as a source of food supply, coming and because going from the Moray Firth, possibly
1: coming and going from the Moray Firth, possibly.
0: Yes, that's a good possibility. Uh, people say it might be a, a large sturgeon, but uh, sturgeon don't come on land and don't fit Nessie's profile. Um, the biggest sturgeon ever caught I believe back in the 1920s was uh, a Baltic sturgeon that was 26 feet long, yeah. but it's still a fish, yeah. right? Fish don't crop on land, uh, at least not at Loch Ness well one kind of fish
1: does uh, one kind of fish does the eel oh eels do for sure, uh, yeah. eels can get pretty big in
0: some cases, I've seen them over 6 feet, freshwater eels, I've actually caught them yeah. uh, in uh, some of the locks I used to fish back home I caught big eels there um, but, uh, definitely they're not Nessie for sure, that's for sure. Or catfish for that matter. But, I mean, I know that the man that's been camping down at Loch Ness for years now, Steve Felton, yeah. um, lives in a converted mobile library. Uh, I admire, I admire his tenacity and his dedication, but he has come to the conclusion, at least in his mind, that Nessie is nothing more than a big catfish. But again, that doesn't fit the profile of of the land sightings.
1: Well, the environmental DNA uh, survey seems to have ruled out wells, catfish, and Loch Ness, but there's still a lot of right. debate about the results from that, so...
0: Well, they might find some DNA or, or, or fragments of DNA that still remain unidentified and, uh, and uh, that could Certainly tell So maybe if Nessie's coming and going all the time, it wouldn't leave that much DNA behind. Probably if not. If there was a population in the lock all the time, yeah. then you would definitely be getting better results.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a scientific paper coming out sometime this year that will hopefully resolve some of the uh, ambiguities.
0: Yes, I hope so. Um, I know that uh, Simon Dinsdale, who is one of Tim's sons, um, he is a retired detective and uh, he went to Loch Ness um, just a part of a, a documentary I guess they were doing and uh, they took a team of divers who were on a large inflatable boat It um, looked like one of these fast-moving um, rescue boats and, uh, but they had a sophisticated form of sonar and they detected something underneath them that was 40 feet long sitting on a ledge and so they sent a couple of divers down and when they approached it this thing moved away quickly from them and, and dived down deep into the lock and but the sonar was telling us that this thing was 40 feet long
1: i think i saw uh, this i believe it was the recent episode two-part episode of the new in search of
0: yeah you're probably right that's good i just saw a clip on it. <laughs> and, uh, but that that greatly intrigued me that definitely something there but even uh Pleasure boats that take passengers on board for a trip around the lock. I mean, they've all got excellent sonar, and I think they picked up uh, a very large target near Urquhart Castle. Uh, So, again, there's certainly large targets being tracked in the lock, and they can move quickly, dive deeply, but of course, we have to wait for them to come to the surface before we can uh, do anything like film them. But I think Tim Dinstill's film in 1960 is still the gold standard. Um, well, because, I'm so uh,
1: impressed the with the film
0: was really big. It was um, Yeah. Uh, I think it was five feet out of the water, it was six feet wide, probably yep. um you know, quite long and uh, in nineteen ninety three um, a company um, did a digital scan, uh, I think it's called digital layering of the original Dimsdale film, and they actually noticed a smaller hump behind the large one and a long trailing body behind the hump. Yeah. Um, So this was a very large animal. See, what people tend to mistake is, uh, on some of these documentaries, they show you footage that Tim took of a fishing boat, a 16-foot-long fishing boat. He arranged for a farmer or a local man to take his boat out into the loch on the same uh, trajectory... Um, as the hump that he filmed earlier in order to make a control test between the two films. Yes. And so people often say, oh, that's just a boat, but that's the film of the boat. If they look at the film of the hump, uh, they can see that it's, it's quite different. Yeah. Well, Henry
1: Bauer has done a lot of uh, defense of Tim Dinsdale's film and has took a lot of the uh, criticisms and rebutted them.
0: That's right. And, of course, we have our good friend, Mr. Watson, um, who yep. uh, has a very good blog on Loch Ness and goes there quite frequently. Yeah.
1: Hopefully <laughs> and, uh, hopefully you and Rowan can hook up at Loch Ness when you
0: go. Well, I'm hoping to meet him there. Uh, we've been in touch, and um, I mentioned that uh, if we can get it right, we should go and meet at Loch Ness, uh, because he puts up game cameras and things around the edge to try and see if anything's going to come ashore that would be a little unusual Yeah. and uh, I've also been in touch with Nick Dinsdale who's Tim's grandson huh. who, still, who still lives in the UK and I said look if I can get um, together with, uh, with um, you know with a, a few other people at Loch Ness would you like to come up and, and join us and he was very open to that idea
1: Andy McGrath is very interested in uh, working with you too
0: Angie McGrath.
1: Yeah, he's interested in meeting up with you at Loch Ness.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, well, I, I, that's something that we can we can plan for for sure. Uh, you know, but I'm I'm still very much intrigued uh, to go there and maybe even uh, maybe even um, Loch Mora, which is uh, much clearer and yeah. still. Uh, from time to time, people still see a large uh, marine animal in there. Yeah, you know,
1: the most but, most uh, impressive.
0: Definitely Definitely worth looking
1: into. Most mm-hmm. impressive sighting from Loch Morar that I know of is the one from 1969 where it bumped into the guy's boats. That's right. Two two fishermen uh, were out there, and uh,
0: the animal may it may not have been um, uh, delivered, but it ran into their boat and uh, sent them flying. It. Yeah. One of them fired a, a rifle. Um, I think he missed the animal, but he fired a, he fired a rifle at it, and, uh, and the thing sank away from view. But uh, that, that must have been, uh, when you think about it, quite a frightening encounter at the time.
1: Most likely.
0: Definitely large unidentified marine animals in these places, no question about it. Uh, you know, so I think that um, it, Loch Ness is still very much worth, uh, worth visiting. Uh, a lot of people seem to spot the animal and film the animal and so on. Uh, we're not just there visiting; we're not actually looking for it. But Messi tends to make an appearance at uh, at um, yeah, you know, some odd and interesting times. Yeah. You know, Tim spent a long time there, and I think he got, apart from the hump, he got two brief head and neck two sightings in
1: 1970 and 1971.
0: That's correct. Yeah. So, um, so I think that. Um, Loch Ness is still very much worth investigating, for sure.
1: Oh, I agree as well. You know, it's
0: still an absolute question. So what my plan for Loch Ness would be, would be to get there, maybe for ten days or so, um, and get, uh, I would meet, obviously, Roland Watson, um, try and get Nick Dinsdale to come and join us, and also um, interview um, a few other local people that have seen the animal. Uh, you know, and uh, that um, that you know, see, we could try and make a proper documentary out of it, and maybe yeah. with a bit of luck, hopefully, we'll see something ourselves. Well, good luck, <laughs> that is a big place, I know, but you never know, you never know.
1: So, what are, what are your thoughts on the Zuyo Maru carcass?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, people, most people have dismissed it as. Uh, a, a decomposing basking shark. That, that's the usual uh, thing, you know. But I think that, uh, in my opinion, um, there's more to that than the story. The Japanese were convinced that they had found a decomposing plesiosaur rather than a basking shark, uh, you know. And, of um, course, the, the protein, the elastidine taken from the snippets of flesh, uh, suggest that it may have belonged to the shark family, but uh, but the Japanese weren't quite convinced with that, were they? They're, they're still no. convinced that they got a plesiosaur or something very like it, and even brought out a commemorative postage stamp yeah. uh, to commemorate the find. Well, uh, so, an I, interesting I think the verdict will be on that one for a while yet.
1: An interesting recent development is they yeah. have found an exceptionally preserved plesiosaur yeah. in Germany that had fibers in its flippers over the bones. They don't know what the chemical composition is because they're so old, but it did have fibers in its flippers, and in the paper, they're even just comparing these fibers in the plesiosaur flipper to the fibers you see in shark fins, which may be an interesting
0: development. Indeed. I think also um, there have been some plesiosaur sightings around uh, the the gold coast of Australia. Yeah. Um, I s- remember seeing a, an interview with an architect, he went out on his boat fishing and he saw this huge long neck and head come out of the water kind of look around yeah. and go back down again, but he said it was a very long neck, the head was distinctly reptilian and it kind of looked around and it had been quietly just dipped under the water again, no fuss, no noise, no commotion um, so definitely there's, uh, and of course uh, you, you know, we be both uh, online discussed the the sighting made by a United States Navy submersible in the Mariana Trench yeah that's the two naval captains from the alvin the alvin yeah that was yeah. 1968 65 i believe okay and i know that uh, these are two highly experienced highly decorated naval captains
1: yeah i spoke um, to i um, spoke to one of them before uh, he died
0: they were quite far, quite deep down there, but when they encountered that plesiosaur.
1: Yeah, well, I spoke to Marvin McCamus before he died. This would have been late 1990s. So I actually spoke to one of them.
0: Well, apparently both both of those gentlemen, uh, Bill Ramey and Marvin McCamus, were uh, absolutely steadfast to the dying day that they encountered a plesiosaur.
1: Well, I know McCamus was because he told me on the telephone himself,
0: so... That's uh, fascinating, That really. Yeah. Uh, the other gentleman I couldn't remember the name of, uh, Loch Ness, is Adrian Shine. He, yeah. uh, um, he runs a big display there, Loch Ness Center. So I'm hoping yep. to get him, uh, Nick Dinsdale and Roland Watson together so we can we can do an interview and discussion with all three of them on camera.
1: Yeah. Somebody else you might want to yeah. look up is uh, Dick Rainer.
0: Dick Rainer, yeah. Yeah. For sure. He's been over and, there 50 uh, years. Go ahead.
1: I said, Dick Reiner's been over there 50 years.
0: Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to go down and see um, uh, the gentleman that's been camping there for years as well, um, Mark Felton. And I think he, he would be an interesting guy to talk to as well. But uh, he's, he's um, currently the kind of go-to guy now. It's between him and Adrian Shine. Yeah. Adrian Esmeralda well, was a skeptic. But Marcus is uh, still so convinced there's something in there. But uh, but I think uh, a variety of opinions, a little bit of skepticism is is good. Yeah. Um, but it's all about getting the getting the evidence in the end, I guess.
1: Yeah. So you want to you want to summarize your final thoughts on Okely Mbembe?
0: certainly, Um, to me um, having been out there so many times spoken to so many different people um, tribes people, you know missionaries, and so on it it just strikes me that what we are dealing with as far as Mokili and Bambi is concerned is it's uh, it's simply a large um, semi-aquatic reptile um, that is rare and dangerous and so far has come closest to anything I know of being an actual living dinosaur. Mackall drew the same conclusion, by the way. With it living Uh, in the water,
1: uh, do you suspect it's probably eating water plants that are on the bottom of these bodies of water, too?
0: uh, All we know is that um, when it's observed feeding, it's always feeding off leaves and fruits that are overhanging uh, the rivers. I'm not sure if they eat the river plants under the water, as hippos do but they seem to be territorial in fact in 2009 uh... there was a frenchman and a south african who went to the congo republic to repair telecommunication equipment and they were walking along the sangha river early one morning uh... with a couple of native made- And there's, there's a, a little island just out um, maybe eighty hundred yards away from them and they, they noticed a large animal moving around on this island and uh... they kind of focused their attention on this, and they could see half the animal, which was the back half, big body, two powerful stubby legs and real legs, and a long, long flexible tail, and it was forging and moving around on this little island, which was covered in foliage. They were joined by a couple of Congolese companions, and they, they started pointing and shouting and screaming, Mokili and Bembi. The sound of their voices carried across the water, and the animal bolted into the water, and um and disappeared under the lake and later on the two men pressed the congolese people uh what was that animal and they said and Bembi, mukali and Bembe. and apparently that particular part of the river was uh, a favorite haunt of hippos but when this mukali and Bembe showed up it, it um, basically chased all the hippos away and uh these two men were there as telecommunications um technicians uh, on contract to the Congolese government. They weren't looking for dinosaurs, but they certainly saw one. And um, Michel Ballot is trying to track them both down. The Frenchman he's spoken to, and he's trying to track down the South African fellow um, to get uh, his side of the story. But it sounds to me like they, they saw Mokili and Dembi in the Sanga River in the Congo, and uh, it certainly uh, left a lasting impression on them.
1: Have Has anybody ever reported any... Impressions of a tail drag associated with any of these footprints they found.
0: Apparently, um, well, Jim Thomas told us a, a couple of uh, of people, you know, the native people. He knows that, um, yeah, there these river banks—they uh, got these large banks of um, that, that protrude in the middle of the river in some places where it's a little shallow—and they've seen these big three-toed prints of the normal killing mandy, and it looked like some kind of a tail drag, maybe even the belly. Because the animals, uh, the the body is slung quite low um, because the legs are quite stubby. So it might have been the the abdomen dragging along um, as the animal came out to cross over a sandbank because they don't come on land that often. So this could have been part of their uh, underbelly dragging along the sand, creating this deep groove in between the footprints.
1: Mm. Yeah, they'd mostly think that the sauropods kept their tail up in the air most of the time, but who knows, you know? Depends on how long the tail would be, you know? If they stopped, I would imagine the tail might droop a little bit. Could possibly leave a tail drag.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it's all possible, because we're only going on what we know from fossils. Um, So you would have to see a uh, a living sauropod to see how it would move around. I mean, some of them clearly would be more capable of moving around on land than others, but for what we know about Mokelium Bembi, I concur with Roy, Roy Mackle uh, when he stated that uh, the description of Mokele Bembi does not correspond with any known living animal in the current repertoire of contemporary zoology. And I thought that was beautifully put.
1: Well, that was, <laughs> there was quite a bit of variety among the sauropods. You know, you had ones like Brachiosaurus, and then Diplodocus was kind of fan compared to Brontosaurus. Do, do you think the descriptions of Motile Mbembe resemble one particular type of sauropod?
0: Well, so we um, know? Roy Michael thought that um, it, it most closely resembles something called the Atlantosaurus, which was a small, medium-sized sauropod, uh, what they called an elephant foot dinosaur. Um, but he believes that... the that instead of having these giants like the brachiosaurus or Titanosaurus or whatever, the the, the environment of the Congo Basin would best suit a small sauropod um, that uh, would fit something like Atlantosaurus uh, around that fifteen to thirty feet, maybe bigger, forty feet, maybe. Yeah. Um, that would have a semi-aquatic habitat, and uh, he also found, by the way, that the plant that and Bambi thrives on, the uh, landolphia fruits, this vine, uh, was also um, around uh, during the Cretaceous period, so uh, it was quite plentiful then, and it's still growing there now. <laughs> yeah,
1: so that part of the world I don't think has changed very much since the time of the <laughs> fossil sauropods,
0: environmentally. Well, the area itself is very, very primitive. I mean, who, who goes there apart from the people, the, 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 the little villages around there and people like me? Uh, you know, it's uh, largely, it's unspoiled. It's uh, still um, very much like it was um, eons ago. In fact, the only difference now is you have outboard engines uh, on people's canoes going up and down the river causing disturbances. But other than that, the area remains relatively tranquil, especially around Lake Telly.
1: And Lake Telly's relatively shallow, right? Usually around what? Um, Thirteen feet
0: yeah, deep. It, yeah, Lake Telly's shallow. It's it's um it can't. I don't think it's any more than thirty feet deep. It's it looked like it was at one time created by a massive meteor impact uh, because it's perfectly oval in shape. Um, the forest is starting to grow into the lake a little more. I mean, and there's uh, there's some magnetic anomalies that you you can. Uh, that you can actually measure at the lake, our competes were going haywire at one point at the lake and uh, I think it was probably created by a massive impact at one point or another that um, uh, you know, but it's, it's full of fish and crocodiles and things now and uh, and I think it's, uh, there's Malombo fruits growing on the north side of the lake where Mokele and bendis are more, most frequently seen so it seems to me that um, uh, you yeah, know, that's one place you'd see them, but, but, but by and large, most of the encounters with the natives of Mokili and Bembe and the Likawala have been in the rivers and in these small swamp pools adjacent to the river system, uh, where people, uh, the locals will go, will, will, will go hunting for monkeys and what have you. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating place, very remote. Yeah. Um, you know you you can still get pretty sick there easily I would imagine uh, you you know uh, but but nevertheless it's still worth investigating there but I I think that we should still be looking at going back to Gabon uh, where um, the area has remained largely untouched and uh, unspoiled for a very long period of time so maybe that's uh, where we'll get lucky this time
1: how bad is the humidity over there
0: Oh, it can be pretty bad, depending on the time of year you go. If you go in the middle of the dry season, you know it's extremely hot. It's humid towards the advent of the wet season, uh, but you get used to it. You know, I mean, uh, when I was out in Peru two years ago, I went up the Amazon just for a couple of days trip, and uh, the the humidity nearly killed me. You know, it's just it, there's no break from the humidity in the Amazon. It's it's hot and sticky and uh, all the time, whereas. In Africa, it cools down at night, yeah. so you have to you have to wear something inside the sleeping bag to stay warm. But in uh, it can get chilly in the Congo Basin at night, whereas in the Amazon, it's just incredibly humid all the time. Well, we've been going here for almost two hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. My wife would give me signals here, so <laughs> so you want you want to wrap it up. Yeah, we'll wrap it up for now, but I'll be happy to come back on. And oh, absolutely.
1: Time. Anytime.
0: Okay. Well, anytime. No. Um so, Thank yeah, you. Was, thanks for the opportunity, Scott. It was great. Uh, yeah. I, well, thank you for coming on. and uh, That's great. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Scott.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Keep in touch.
0: Yep. Well, we sure will. Thanks a lot. Yep. Yeah. Bye. Bye for now.
1: Brings you The Haunted
0: Sea with host Scott Mardis.